we always try to take people back to people process then tools, right? Because if you just mm. if you just introduce a tool to a bad process, all you've done is just automate a bad process, right? And that's why it works. It's because the people that are actually doing the job are coming up with the recommendations, not executives, not the CEO who does not understand the details at the ground level. You want people on the ground. I know there's a quote out there that says, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? Mm. Um, yeah. Which I would argue, okay, that's true. I think what Matt and I are more proponents of is that uh, strategy and culture have to have breakfast at the same table. Welcome to Road to Revenue Leadership a show that candidly explores how hard it is to create, build, and scale world-class revenue organizations by leaders that have been there, done that, and have seen the results. My name is Dylan Mendez, founding CEO of Usight, and I'm excited that you're tuning in to the podcast. If you're a fan of the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Enjoy. I just suggest that uh, we kickstart this podcast, Pablo, with a little introduction about yourself. Who is Pablo Dominguez? Where are you from? Uh, you know, what would you like to share about yourself that you think might be uh, might be interesting for the listeners? Yeah, so uh, Pablo Dominguez, uh, I am currently at uh, a VC private equity firm called uh, Insight Partners. I run the sales and customer success team there, but um, I'm originally from Mexico, uh, born and raised in Mexico, um, moved to the United States when I was around six, seven years old, and uh, okay. grew up in Texas, uh, west, west Texas, about as west as you can go. And uh, I consider myself, you know, Mexican, but also a proud Texan, as most people from Texas <laughs> are very proud of Texas. And uh, yeah, one interesting thing about me that uh, people may not know is I love, one of my hobbies is uh, smoking meat. So I have a very large <laughs> smoker right. and I, I smoke on the weekends for my family. I have two kids and a wife and uh, two dogs and they love to smoke meat also. So I, I smoke a lot of meat. You're giving me ideas for the conference, Pablo. Maybe we'll have a, a barbecue prepared there. You can smoke the meat Absolutely. the great. right way. So. <laughs> no, awesome. So, all right. So thanks for that uh, that, that quick, short, uh, sweet introduction. So partnered Inside Partners, can you maybe also share a little bit about what Inside Partner is, do, uh, and maybe, yeah, in what way it is also unique compared to other uh, VC and private equity firms? Absolutely. So Inside Partners has been around for... 25 plus years, and they have spent their entire time focused on uh, business to business investment and growth software companies. Um, so that's that's their primary focus. Whereas other firms might do, you know, software or manufacturing, flying cars, etc. Um, Insight has focused entirely on with the growth space uh, in software, and so we are the experts in software investing, and we do everything. Uh, from early stage investments, uh, you know, all to uh, private equity investments that are majority uh, controlled, et cetera. So it's, it's a good array. Um, large presence, uh, obviously, in the U.S. Firm was started in New York, um, but a lot of investments also in Europe um, and in uh, Tel Aviv. Uh, I think we're the largest software investor in Tel Aviv and um, a lot of investments also uh, in APAC. So very, very strong global reach. Um, again, very good focus on um, on software. And I think one of the things that makes us very unique is not only the expertise in software, right? So we've got a very strong uh, investment arm that makes sure they're always looking at the best investments, um, but it's coupled with once we make the investment, you get access to a team called Onsite. Um, and so that team of Onsite is made up of over 140 professionals 
that are former operators, right? Those are people that have been chief product officers, chief uh, engineers, uh, heads, heads of marketing, heads of sales, heads of customer success, heads of talent. Um, and they help our portfolio companies scale on the journey, right? So you come in and take dollars from Insight and you're getting people that have been there with you at your stage. And when you graduate to a different stage, you're getting people that have also been there in that stage. So um, it's a pretty large team and it's something that we're very proud of in terms of the value that it adds for our companies. Yeah, interesting. I can definitely, definitely see the value in that. Um, but then how does that work uh, concretely? Do you have some people that, you know, are being allocated to uh, the portfolio company you guys have invested in and they work there alongside them? Or is it really when there is a need, you guys know what people internally at Inside Partners can, uh, from the on-site team, can go into into this portfolio company and help there? Or how does that how does that work? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question because um, we don't have the model that most PE firms have where, and I used to work for a company that got acquired by Silver Lake and TPG, right? And they dropped people on the ground at our company five days a week, right? And I actually learned a lot from these individuals because now I'm, now I'm one of those, right? Um, <laughs> but that's not really our model. Our model is more to advise than to operate as like, like okay. hands and feet on the ground. So um, typically a CEO will have a question, right? Or the investment team might see an opportunity where, you know, in a board meeting or, you know, CEO reaches out and says, hey, we're launching a new product. Uh, it's our first time doing this. Um, uh, can you provide some guidance, right? And so we we have the resources there to to work with the team and provide input and guidance and help shepherd them through that. Or you might have a seasoned company, right? Who's saying, um, we're rolling out uh, quotas to our salespeople next year. I've done it a million times as a CEO or as a head of sales, but would love a fresh set of eyes on it. What are other companies doing that's different? And because we have over 500 companies that we've invested in actively right now, um, there's a lot of pattern recognition in terms of what's best practices, what we see in the market. Um, so sometimes people mm -hmm. just want another data point uh, to work with. So. A lot of it is them coming to us, uh, making requests, um, but we also make sure that we are proactively engaging with the portfolio companies that potentially might need the most support. And I can also imagine that in some way you also make the uh, sharing of knowledge and experience and best practices possible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's one of the benefits, right, of being part of the portfolio and it being so large is a lot of the materials and best practices um, we provide to them on our community platform, right? That we call Go, it's uh, Insight Go. And so if you're part of the community, okay. you can access content on there. You can you can talk to your peers. Um, and I think our marketing and communications team also does an excellent job of hosting uh, events every year to bring, you know, CEOs together from, you know, healthcare or cyber, um, having an AI conference where we bring in experts from all over all over the world mm. uh, to work not only with our portfolio companies, but with their peers. So we try to build a pretty good community as a firm um, to get value out of that because I've also found that, um, you know, I run sales and customer success, right? So I've got a team of about 20 people that are experts in sales and CS, but we're constantly also learning, uh, Dylan, from our CROs and heads of sales and heads of CS in the portfolio, right? right. So sometimes it's great to say, Hey, Dylan, I know you asked me this question, but let me connect you with three of your peers that I know are doing a great job. Why don't you guys talk? And now you've got people that you can go to all the time as well versus uh, only relying on insight, which is great. 
Love that. Can you maybe, from um, your responsibility in, in leading the sales and customer success team over there, what are maybe concrete examples of advice perhaps that you have been given or challenges that you, you know, the portfolio companies have been facing that, yeah, could be interesting to, to, to know, to get a better picture of, uh, of, uh, of what you guys work on? Yeah, I think, um, so for example, um, a question that comes up all the time, typically it varies, right? But based on what I've seen with so many companies, there comes a time around 20, 30, 40 million in ARR, where if you've had good, strong product market fit, you've gotten by with probably an account executive owning new business expansion, maybe renewals, right? Probably by then you've, you've given renewal to somebody. And so the question comes up a lot, hey, when do I split? Should I have somebody else just driving expansion, right? The cross sell and the upsell mm. and just have somebody doing new business. Um, do I hire a CS person or should it be an account manager? Um, and that usually starts to happen around 30, right? 30, 40-ish million. So that question comes up a lot, right? Do I, do I hire new people? Uh, right. Do I just change the, the organizational plan? structure? Yeah. Or do I just, instead of changing the, uh, instead of hiring somebody else, maybe I just give people two quotas. Do you have a new, new number and an expansion number, right? Which mm. might work, but it adds some complexity. Um, so I think that you've got to think about like people that like to hunt new business, right? Don't like to farm, do expansion typically, right? They, mm -hmm. they want to do one thing and people that are good at farming are typically not good at hunting. So having one role do it all will get you to some point, but at some point you do need to say, I need to break up responsibilities and not have blended job roles. Right. Uh, because typically what you'll see in the, in the data is leaders will come to us and say, Hey, we're missing our number on new or expansion. Why? Well, after you do some digging, you realize when you talk to the reps, well, do you sell new or expansion? The typical answer is they will sell what's easiest to hit their quota. Right. And so mm. unless you pay them specifically for something or you split up the responsibility, um, sales is like water going down a mountain. It will find the easiest way from the top to the bottom <laughs> right. unless you direct it in a certain way. Right. So um, that's something people sometimes forget. I like the metaphor. No, and I think, yeah, and I know, I mean, I, I've looked at your LinkedIn and um, I could tell you have, you know, had a, let's say, quite wonderful career so far. Uh, but also a hundred percent sales, maybe even sales ops, if I can say, uh, that maybe has even turned into revenue ops. Um, but so let's, let's talk about that a little bit, if, if you don't mind, uh, because you started as a consultant, uh, at the Alexander group for a good four years. Um, and they're specifically in Salesforce effectiveness. Can you maybe kind of share that initial start of your career? Like, why did you start it there? Was it conscious was it unconsciously that you ended up there and then you know how did it all start yeah so that is a great question so i graduated at the peak of the dot-com bubble in 99 and uh i was a management information systems major at the university and that was basically the equivalent of today of um i don't know if you wanted to be a coder uh, and learn data science right and uh it was mm -hmm. a new field back then and so there were too many jobs and not enough graduates, which was good for us at the time, right? And every job offered to me after college was, you're going to sit in a room and code all day, which maybe in hindsight, I should have taken that job given where, given where the skill set is needed. But 
Um, oh. <laughs> it wasn't for me. Like I, I like to talk to people, right? Like, and so I didn't take a job. I graduated college, uh, backpacked across Europe with my friends and came back and all of my friends started working and I didn't want to do that. And I spent three months on monster.com because there was no LinkedIn back then. Like that was the main monster. I don't even know if monster Source, around uh, anymore. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's where you found jobs. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, the, the Alexander group was hiring an analyst and they needed people that were strong with computers could do Excel PowerPoint. And I had coding skills and I was like, Oh, I can do all these things, but I don't know anything about sales and marketing. I didn't even take a sales and marketing class in college. And they said, don't worry, we'll teach you all that. And that's how I started my career. I just literally found a job randomly and then fell in love with sales, marketing, go-to-market effectiveness. Um, did that for four years, did a lot of work with companies in lots of industries, healthcare, uh, you know, high tech. I did work at Enron. I designed the sales compensation plans at Enron before Enron collapsed. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, I did a lot of work for some airlines, uh, for Charles Schwab. Uh, it was, it was fun, man. It was, I learned a lot and that opened up. I think that's the good thing I think that's a good thing also about consultancy is that you quickly get in touch with so many projects, so many industries, so many challenges companies are facing. And I think early in your career, that's maybe a very good thing to do to really quickly get a big picture of what's, uh, yeah, the, the, the yeah. market can offer. I couldn't agree more. I think if you're early in your career and you're not sure, Or maybe you are sure, but you want to get well-rounded. I think consulting is a phenomenal place to start. Um, yeah. It's a lot of travel, or it was back then. I was traveling five days a week. But when you're 21, 22, you're not really <laughs> tied down, right? So or maybe you are. I don't know. But uh, I think it's easier at that age. Um, but you're right. It does give you visibility into industries, different types of leaders, what you like, don't like. Um, and then that mm -hmm. opens the doors, I think, for a lot of other things. And you also get trained very well. Consultants provide phenomenal training on skills on public speaking, how to do meetings, uh, how to do analysis decks in PowerPoint mm -hmm. or Google, right? So I think it's it's a great starting point and ending point yeah. if you want. I think a lot of overlapping skill sets with the the sales professional yeah. in some way. Absolutely. And also you still try to be very methodological, analytical as well, yeah. when which is super valuable, I think, in the value selling approach. Absolutely. Yeah. It's in fact a lot of the training that we sometimes recommend to salespeople, right, is the consultative skill set, right? Mm. Um, so there's a lot to be said to that. So, so yeah, I think that I think that opened the, my mind and the door. I mean, my career took off from there in the sense that one of the companies we were consulting for ended up hiring five people from our consulting firm, which was an issue, whatever, because of the, oh, the yeah, conflict. Oh yeah, the Alexander group probably wasn't yeah, happy with that. They weren't too happy with that, but you know, it, it allowed us. To leverage the work we had already done, go in and um, right. Yeah, the next eight years of my like, career were phenomenal. Um, learning a significant a lot about it wasn't a high performing company uh, that was on a high trajectory, which actually I think is a good thing. I think sometimes people that have only been in rocket ships uh, are honestly struggling in a time like today because they don't know mm. they haven't experienced hardship, right? And so, what do I do when everything has been going perfect? Right. Survivorship bias. I, yeah, exactly. I lived through eight years of very difficult times, but I learned how to leverage process uh, and be effective and efficient. Um, so it was good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because can you maybe share about that experience? Because indeed you did four years of consultancy at the Alexander Group and then moved to Avaya for a good eight years. 
uh, but immediately started in the global sales compensation. Uh, so very curious to, to yeah. Yeah, so, so, here, so here's something interesting about my career. So I started, my first job outside of, out of consulting was in HR running, uh, I was on a team uh, that was running sales compensation, right, in HR for sales. Um, and the next job I took at ADP was also starting in HR running sales compensation. So the question is like, well, hey, how does somebody that started in HR doing sales comp end up, you know, doing rev revenue operations uh, and, and, and some sales items? What, if you think about sales comp, if all you're focusing on is just, hey, let's pay Dylan, you know, this on-target earnings and here's the comp plan, very tactical job, right? But mm -hmm. um, we, my boss and I made a lot of effort to spend time with all of the sales leaders, the CRO, uh, sales reps, really understanding their issues. And so from there, people said, well, hey, maybe these guys should help out with quota setting, right? Territories. Um, and again, that just opened up the opportunity for, hey, let's just put this person in, in ops, right? Um, and that sort of took my career from just doing sales compensation to doing, you know, everything operations. Uh, whether it was trainings, uh, you know, running sales kickoffs, president's clubs, um, all of that sort of became part of the purview as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely super interesting uh, the transition. But I can also 100% see why I think that uh, we as human are still very money driven in some way. And I think that uh, when you want to influence behavior, uh, yeah, playing with the, the sales comp, I think it's a... Uh, yeah, definitely a good tool to yeah. It was the honestly, with. if I if I wasn't doing sales comp, I don't think it would have happened. I think sales comp, to your point, is like it's the tip of the spear for the salesperson, right? Because like how I get paid, and I want to make a lot of money. And so if you can influence that and understand it and really change the game, uh, you build trust with people, right? And obviously, sometimes you're not their best friend because sometimes the company's looking to <laughs> not pay as much for certain reasons, right? But uh, we always believe rep should make as much money as possible if they're performing at certain levels. And so I think um, the good reps always appreciated that because they knew we were trying to reward them. You know, pay for performance is, is great as long as people are performing. So, mm -hmm. 100%. So yeah, you did uh, eight years at Via, then three and a half years at ADP with a similar uh, journey, we'll say, starting at uh, in HR with sales compensation and then uh, moved to uh, more a RevOps position. Uh, but then you went to AppNexus for four years um, before actually starting at Insight Partners and s and actually in parallel also starting Board, board of Advisor uh, position at uh, quite interesting companies. Um, from those three uh, uh, elements, uh, AppNexus, Insight Partners, uh, Board of Advisor, are there anything that you think could be interesting to uh, to talk about? Yeah, any anecdotes, I think any, uh, any learnings? The, I think um, my time at AppNexus in New York, so a startup in New York uh, that I joined, uh, it's about 40 million and then exited at about 400. Um, probably taught me the most because it was the first time I had worked in a technical founder-led company, right? Mm. Avaya... ADP were sales led, similar to like Salesforce or Oracle or Adobe. Um, so this is my first right. dip into, oh, 
sales is not first, right? It's, it's engineers and product are first and sales is mm -hmm. second fiddle. And so it was, it was, had I not had that experience, I do not think I'd be, um, as successful at my job today because I'd have a different mindset. And we have a lot of product led companies, right. That are technical founder led, uh, and they operate very differently. Right. And so you've got to learn how to, whether you're sales first or product first, I think you've got to learn how to balance both and make sure that people don't feel excluded. Um, it taught me a lot about how the engineering teams think about running a company, um, how mm -hmm. they view sales also, right. And the role of sales, um, because obviously in a sales-led company, you think, hey, sales is everything. Everybody, whatever everybody does is to support us. And in a you know technical founder-led company, it's different, right? It's no, the product's going to do everything, and everything is sort of ancillary. And I think there's a middle ground you have to find. Um, but very good experience with the CEO, with the CTO, just learning how they run companies versus what I was used to. Very interesting uh, sharing you that because. Obviously, I'm also super biased towards the sales-led companies <laughs> as, as building a, a sales uh, leadership community. Um, so never really thought of that technical-led founder uh, environment. Um, what were maybe like the, the challenges that you then encountered when, whenever you, yeah, you started AppNexus? Yeah, so the knowing challenge... Knowing that you had that... Yeah, yeah, the challenge was like, and I'll give you a funny, uh, funny real story was, this actually happened in a meeting. Why do we have a CRM? And I'm like, what do you mean? Why do we have a CRM? Like, we're using <laughs> Salesforce, right? And I'm like, I, and my thought was like, this can't be a real question. Like, this is a trick question, oh, right? Like, yeah. And they're like, no. Why do we have a CRM? Like, I can't believe we're spending, you know, X amount on a CRM. We should just build our own. This is stupid. And I was like, this is not happening. <laughs> so things like that, where the mindset is. Hey, well, we can build it ourselves. It's easier. Why are we Why are we paying Salesforce or HubSpot something, right? Or right. Um, why do we have so many salespeople? Like the product just sells itself. And I'm like, we're not selling iPhones here, where they literally just sell themselves, guys. Like we're selling a mm -hmm. technical product that does require some discussion with a human, uh, so, you know, some value selling, if you will. Um, so right. those discussions, I think, were shocking to me at first, but then you start to understand why. Um, but I would say like for the audience, it's really relevant. If you're ahead of sales or you're looking to go into, you know, you're looking to change jobs. If you've only been in sales led companies and you end up falling in love with a company that has a technical founder and where sales is not first, you need to be prepared for that, right? You might go, holy cow, I wasn't ready for this um, or vice versa, right? If you've been only in technical led companies, I think you'd enjoy sales led, but there's, it, it's it's just a very different environment, right? So just be, very thoughtful about where you're going and mm -hmm. what you're getting into because we interview a lot of sales leaders for insights companies, right? And always want to make sure like, hey, you do realize this is technical led founder. Have you worked with a technical led founder before versus a go-to-market founder, mm. right? No. Okay, well. Are you very specific about it? Yeah, like a technical led founder that doesn't have go-to-market experience, right? Let's say if it's a first-time founder, may not understand, you know, the importance between expansion and new business or how to do renewals and mm -hmm. all that, right? So one of the things we do at Insight is provide that level of training for technical founders through one of our partners, Winning by Design, to, to you know, sort of upskill and up-level them. But um, yeah, it's, it was a great learning experience for me and has made me stronger for it, even though it was extremely challenging and frustrating. <laughs> I can 100% I can imagine. Um, but I think also very interesting uh, from that experience is the exit that you made. Because that was also something new then. Am I right? 
Yeah, the exit was awesome. So um, again, we were on a plan for IPO. Um, however, we ended up getting purchased, which was great, right? Because that's always a good event for people. And uh, you know, the company, I think, had been around for about 11 years. So having that event to reward people for what they had done um, is phenomenal, right? So it was good to be part of that, the planning. Uh, and then once that event happened, um, I don't know. I don't know if recruiters get notified when there's things because literally three recruiters called, found me on LinkedIn <laughs> that day and said, hey, that was the, yeah, <laughs> there's the window of opportunity. Yeah, there's opportunities here at Insight and some other places. Are you interested? And um, yeah, that's how I, well, that's literally how I ended up at Insight out, from LinkedIn. Lovely, lovely. So, so you heard about Insights. Did you know about Insight Partners before? No, I, I actually did not. I, I did not. I did not know much about venture capital or private equity, right? Besides the fact that we got bought by Silverlake and TPG. Mm. And when I was Get at that. AppNexus, the startup, uh, you know, I would go to board meetings and there were investors there. Um, this was not an area that I really knew much about, right? I had actually thought about leaving AppNexus when we got bought and starting my own business and doing what I'm doing at Insight with, with uh, you know, because I was getting a lot of pings from people like, hey, how do I do this in sales or in operations right. or product? Can you help me like, with oh, that? I yeah. can do this, right? And uh, Insight was basically said, hey, you can do that for us. Uh, and uh, really loved the team. They had the a big infrastructure. Yeah. Like a project. I'm not sure if I'm entrepreneurial per se. Uh, seemed easier to plug into a machine than try and build it myself. But uh, that's how I ended up here. I get that. All right. So how did they then kind of convince you or what did motivate you to join Insight Partners when you heard when you heard about the opportunity? Uh, one did a lot of research on the team uh, and also talked to people that uh, worked uh, in companies for Insight, and they really enjoyed the approach that Insight has working with them. So it's not overbearing, it's not draconian, if you will. It's uh, it felt like a partnership. The culture felt like something I wanted to be a part of, um, which is great. Phenomenal leadership team. Uh, my boss, Hillary Gosher, who basically built out on-site the team of 140 operators, plus yeah. that I mentioned. She's done a great job building out the team. And um, yeah, it's it's been exciting. I've, you know, I've almost been here five years and uh, it's changed drastically since I've started yeah. and uh, it's awesome. So Love that energy. Love that energy, Pablo. And recently I've also written a book, um, What Do Unicorns Know? And... I would love to actually talk a little bit about that because I'm pretty sure that the book is also kind of a, um, if I can call it summary perhaps, of the the 25 years of experience that you have had. Um, and so for the people that, you know, haven't heard about the book yet, can you maybe do the do the quick elevator pitch about what it is? And then I'm sure we will yeah. still deep dive a little bit on it. Yeah, no worries. So, so the book is called What a Unicorn Knows. Um, it's been six years in the making about. Um, and it's a book six that years I, in the making. Yeah, six wow. years in the making. It's a book that I've been working on with my co-author Matt May. So Matt May is also at Insight Partners, um, and he and I met 11 years ago uh, at ADP, and he was a consultant, and we brought him in to help us uh, streamline the sales process because it was taking too long for uh, reps to get a deal through the system. And Matt. Um, is in, is experienced, but he's also an operator. Like ne neither of us are lean, uh, lean process uh, experts, 
Um, mm. And so the book, Matt, Matt and I had the benefit of working together at ADP. Then I leveraged him at Nexus at the startup in New York. And then he's been working with me and the team here at Insight for the last uh, four years. And so a lot of what we were seeing was that the most successful companies are applying different elements of lean um, to grow sustainably, right? And so what does that mean is they're doing things, whether it's, you know, times are good or times are bad, the best companies that become unicorns um, are leveraging these different elements, right? And so, yeah, six years ago, we were like, hey, why don't we start document documenting a lot of what we're doing here and put it into a book? And then, yeah, the book is the culmination of um, sharing those best practices with people. It's, uh, it is not an academic book, right? So a lot of the books, sometimes that I read, I'm like, hey, this is great, but what do I do with it? We wanted to mm. make it uh, applicable to anyone. So whether you're a startup, whether you're a scale-up, so you're a little bit more mature, or even if you're a public company and you're looking to, uh, you know, get that innovation spark back in you, because sometimes when you go public, you know, you kind of lose some of that. Um, right. Yeah, this book is for anyone. And there's templates, there's examples. Uh, you can walk away actually doing something with it, uh, which is great in my mind. And I'm biased though, but... <laughs> <laughs> a little bit biased perhaps <laughs> but uh uh yeah you know um we we have ordered a book so i'm very excited to to have it uh cool. to be able to read it i haven't yet but i have done some research about it and there is something that triggered my interest though you say i mean in the book you mentioned something about opposing forces when scaling fast and i kind of want to hear it from the the author co-author what do you talk about with opposing forces, what is it exactly that you yeah. mean when scaling fast? Yeah, so, and we we leverage, I love that the audience is also in Europe, but I know you guys are huge Formula One fans, right? And so we, we, we use <laughs> Formula One a lot in the book as uh, an example of what greatness looks like, right? Because Formula One uh, is the epitome, if you will, of innovation, of effectiveness and efficiency, right? I think mm -hmm. um, the fastest pit stop time in Formula One is less than two seconds, 1.82 yeah, seconds, yeah. Uh, which is remarkable, right? Um, and so there's opposing forces when you're on the track, right? It's no different than a car. There's, uh, there's drag, right? There's inertia. Um, and so no different than uh, a car in a company right? You might have things slowing you down when you're trying to roll out your strategy, right? Whether it's internal politics or decision-making or uh, things move more slowly, et cetera. So those forces are opposing you. And then one of the biggest forces opposing you is waste, right? Um, you think about mm. Formula One, they have removed as much waste as possible from the pit stop, right? The fact that you can change four tires in 1.82 seconds, they've eliminated as much as possible. But if you think about sales, there's a lot of waste in the process, right? From the time a lead comes in to when a rep is able to get the, this, the counter signature from a customer to when the customer gets the solution installed and is using it. Um, there's a lot of process. Yeah, time to there, value right? and, there's a mm -hmm. lot of people touching things. There's a lot of contracts. There's a lot of paper going back and forth digitally or, or not. Um, and there's a lot of time that the customer's waiting, right? Which is basically waste. I paid for something and now... I have to wait a month or a week or six months to actually use it. Um, that is time that is not valuable to me as a customer, right? I'm paying to use something. Mm -hmm. So 
a lot of what we try to 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 recommend is to minimize the inertia, the drag, the waste uh, in the process to make it more efficient uh, and effective, right? Talking about the waste, um, I feel like you mostly then also focus on the processes inside the organization. Um, how do you then also keep an eye on toolings and technology when you know that what's new today might be old in three months and what's new in three months might be old in six months? You know, how do you still keep to find a balance in having your processes so optimized that you don't have any wastes yet you still don't know what will be there in the future to, or yeah, how would you kind of approach that, you know, that challenge? Yeah, and let me let me clear up something. You'll never not have waste, right? Because, uh, and we talk about this in the book, like the customer only wants to pay for value-added work, right? Then there is non-value-add work that has to get done no matter what, right? So for example, and <laughs> we'll focus on Europe, right? There's GDPR compliance stuff that probably has to get put oh, into the gosh. process that I, as a customer, I don't really care that you have to do that, mm -hmm. right? But it's non-value-add, but it has to happen. Then there's waste. And so the trick is, how do you minimize as much waste by providing more value-add work or potentially non-value-add work that has to get done? Um, but there's always going to be a little bit of waste in the system, right? Um, mm -hmm. We focus on the process because um, in sales and post-sales, there's such an opportunity to streamline that to make sure that the customer is getting what they want as quickly as they want. And reps aren't wasting time with non-value-add work. Right, because reps want to be moving on to the next deal or mm -hmm. anytime they're not spending time in front of the customer um, is basically non-value at time, right? No different than every millisecond that the car is in the pit stop and not on the race is time that I'm losing potentially the race, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's why we focus on process a lot because sales is a lot about process. To answer your question on how technology is changing a lot, we always talk about people process tools. Right. A lot of a lot of companies that I've worked with, whether it's at Insight or others, have always jumped to the conclusion sometimes, hey, this new this new this new tool comes out. Uh, it says it's going to reduce the workload of my reps by us. They're going to be more productive, et cetera. Right. We always try to take people back to people process then tools. Right. Because if you just mm. if you just introduce a tool to a bad process, all you've done is just automate a bad process. Right. Maybe you get some mm. efficiency, but we always start first with is the process optimal then add technology or people to it so when we do these engagements with a lot of companies um and make recommended changes to the process dylan it's always without adding anything you're not allowed to add people you're not allowed to buy anything you're not allowed to add technology it is just look at what you have and remove anything that is considered ways to make it better then test mm, that process and if it works all right now roll it out And then if the tool makes it even better, great. But we never introduce, we never add incremental stuff before we remove the bad things first. Mm -hmm. All right. Very interesting. What's your go-to approach? And maybe you can bring an example in because otherwise it might be a, a quite abstract. But how would you go to evaluate where there is waste? How do you identify waste? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. Um, we don't do it. The team does it. Right. And that's what that's what I love about the approach. And when I say we, we have an approach, but, you know, we provide the framework in the book so that anybody can do it. Right. 
the key mm-hmm. is let's say let's say let's say um timed implementation for your product was taking four months and you're like why can't this take 30 days right you would bring a group a group of people together from legal from finance from sales post sales a bdr marketing implementation uh product engineering to say okay let's map out the current process right from the time a customer wants to buy something to the time it actually gets implemented what happens right and so you, you bring in cross-functional people because let's face it when i do my task whether i'm in sales or in legal i just care about my task that's what i got hired to do right rarely do i have time to think about well when i'm done and my stuff goes to dylan what happens i don't know why i'm assuming dylan does his job right and so you mm-hmm. get those people together and they slowly when you, when you start to map out the whole process together they go wait why are we doing that like that's not necessary like i can't believe it takes a week for this i could do this just send me the email and i'll approve it right like why are you filling out these forms <laughs> and so they realize that here's all the elements of waste in the process once they've identified that that typically takes about three hours right three to four hours they map out the process and call mm-hmm. out the pain points then you ask them okay all of you are the ones that are on the ground doing these jobs build a new process like if you you guys are the decision makers, what should the optimal process be without spending money, without buying a tool, without adding more people, just with what you have today? And mm-hmm. they come up with it, right? The people that are actually doing the job come up with it. And then that is presented to the executive team for approval. Um, and that's why it works. It's because the people that are actually doing the job are coming up with the recommendations, not executives, not the CEO who does not understand the details at the ground level. You want people on the ground. Do you feel that sometimes you move then towards a from a position towards an optimized position instead of really retransform the entire process or organization? If you understand what I mean. So yeah, it's a good question. Sometimes people just want to tweak, right? So you you try to get them in right. the mindset of this isn't about making changes. Like it's a blank slate. If you could, if you could, you have to guide them and say recreate this from scratch. Like what is ideal? Think about. Again, if you can if you can reduce time to implementation from three months to 30 days, think about how more quickly the customer gets value, right? And now they want to buy more stuff or how much more money we get, which means we get paid more, et cetera. The company does better, right? The economy improves. So you have to get people in the mindset of thinking differently, not just, well, let me just tweak this or that, right? Like, so. Mm-hmm. How do you, I mean, wh- what kind of, um indicators, um, KPIs, whatever, do you look into when it comes to identifying waste? You know, what, what are you trying to optimize or retransform to a better, to a better metric? What are like that the indicators that you think, you know, uh, commercial leaders, revenue leaders should really be aware of because, you know, those are the basics. Those are, you know, what we should build an organization on. Yeah. So like, if your sales cycle is longer than it should, right? So if you have a target that says, you know, our sales cycle should be 75 days, but for whatever reason, it's 120 days, right? On average, well, why, right? So let's, we should look to decrease that. If, if you want customers up and running in 45 days, but it's taking you 60 days, okay, well, you know, why, right? So like time to go live. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I'd, I'd look at those things like sales cycle and time to go live. Also conversion rates, right? How quickly are you able to convert deals from when it, you know, from a lead to a, uh, you know, stage one opportunity to close, right? Are things getting stuck in the mm-hmm. middle for whatever reason? And when you're looking at, you know, if you have a good sales process, 
Um, a lot of times you can say, hey, deals are getting stuck as soon as contracts go to legal. Why? Why does everything get redlined, right? And so we have this process that we use in Lean called the five whys. Always ask why five times, right? So deals are getting stuck in legal. Why? Well, because the contract's long. Well, why is it long? Well, because legal is very concerned about these things. Why? Well, because one time we got sued for this. Well, why? Well, okay, it seems like it was an exception. So now we've made it too complex for everybody, mm. right? Oh, okay. Well, maybe we can change the contract instead of figuring something else out. So it's it's pinpointing where in the process you either have a bottleneck or things are taking longer than they should. Um, so we recommend always looking at metrics at every stage of the process, what's converting, what's not. Um, maybe it's training, right? Maybe it's not a process issue and just the reps are not trained on how to move something from stage two to stage three, et cetera. So it just depends. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. My next question is who should be actually skilled at everything you just mentioned? Actually, who should read your book inside the organization? Yeah, so the book honestly would be very would benefit uh, a CEO, right? Any CEO who is um, wanting to optimize their organization, because we talk a lot about strategy, right? Like knowing where to focus and where not to focus. But um, mm -hmm. if you're in sales, any head of sales, any head of CS, any head of operations that is managing a team and wants to be more effective. Um, to deploy resources. Um, and again, if you're trying to hit your number and exceed your number, um, it's all about efficiency and effectiveness right now, right? Especially mm -hmm. especially in turbulent times, right? But the beauty of the book is um, the best leaders and the best companies are applying these principles even in good times, right? That's what differentiates them. If you think about, um, if you think about the best athletes in the world, right? When they win a gold medal at the Olympics, doesn't matter what it is—swimming, running, uh, you know, football, etc. When they win, the next day they're not on vacation, right? They're practicing the next day, right? Even though I just won, I'm still going out to practice because I want to continue winning, right? And so that's what mm -hmm. um, my advice to people would be: is always be applying these principles or others, regardless of the situation, because that's what it takes to be number one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, 100%. I think when times are good, in some way you can afford to waste because growth is still there. People are still happy. Yeah. But when times get bad, yeah, you just have to get rid out of them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, the title of the book is also, because we get this question a lot, it's like, well, hey, there's five principles, right? And so we talked about, you know, the, the book is called What a Unicorn Knows, but we provided five principles called scale, right? So we try to tie it to scale and... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, sometimes people ask, well, hey, well, which, which what's most important right now, right? And what a unicorn knows is there isn't one element that's the most important, right? It's how to balance all five elements um, at the right time or or, or what's needed. Um, and that's the secret, right? Um, it's not, hey, just focus on you know, accelerated value or strategic speed. Um, they're all critical to be successful. It's just knowing the balance. Yeah, can you maybe share the, the unicorn model scale? What, what does each letter stand for? Yeah, so um, let's go in order for scale. So S is for strategic speed, right? We talk a lot about strategy um, and companies being very laser focused, especially now on what they should be doing and not doing, right? And I think that's the hardest part from a lean perspective is knowing what not to do. Right? I think a lot of companies, sales leaders, CEOs try to do everything, right? I want to go in every mm -hmm. market. I want to roll out every product. 
um and yeah it's, it's really a muscle we gotta we we need to learn flex yeah that's, uh, that's for sure exactly and then the the c is about constant experimentation right the best companies are experimenting right not only with product but also with how they go to market with sales and marketing and post sales um so that means that if you say yes then you do it at a smaller scale before yeah potentially yeah like like test it out right like test it have a hypothesis um whether it's with your product or with your organization um the best companies are always experimenting right um mm -hmm. and then uh accelerated value right is the is the a in scale right so how do i decrease time to value so that customers um can start leveraging the solution as quickly as possible right and uh then we talk about lean process and the l which we talked about which is how do yeah. i streamline the, the process how do i you know remove waste etc and then the e is for esprit de corps right which sort of is the glue that holds everything together it's about the culture it's about the team um because honestly you could have the best strategy right you could have all these different elements but if you don't have the right leader or leaders in place to execute on this it doesn't matter and vice versa um If you have a phenomenal leadership team, you built a great culture and an organization, but you don't have clarity on the direction you're going, et cetera, it doesn't work, right? And so um, I know there's a quote out there that says, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? Mm. Um, yeah. Which I would argue, okay, that's true. I think what Matt and I are more proponents of is that uh, strategy and culture have to have breakfast at the same table, right? Like they're with, they're, 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 they have to be together. Love it. One without the other is uh, is not a good combination. So, hundred percent. Well, Pablo, I, I feel like we could talk for hours, yeah. uh, definitely about your book. But luckily for us and uh, for yeah everyone listening, if you are attending, we are sales. We will have a copy of Pablo's book uh, prepared for you. Again, what a unicorn's nose. Uh, we have spoiled a little bit already about uh, uh, what's being discussed in the book. But uh, yeah, Pablo, super, super excited to have you on May the 11th. Thank you. I'm super excited to, to meet you live and uh, also talk to, to everybody that's attending and uh, happy to spend time with anybody there uh, that day. So thank you. For sure. For sure. If people want to find out more about you, Pablo, where would you like to uh, send them to? Yeah, they're welcome to go to LinkedIn, uh, Pablo Dominguez. Uh, my handle is PobTexas, P-A-B Texas. And uh Also, you can go to our website, What a Unicorn Knows, if you want to learn more about the principles there and how to apply them in your day-to-day uh, -day work. Perfect. And, of course, come to We Are Sales Conference and then you'll see Pablo in real life. Yep. <laughs> see you all there. Pablo, I have one last question for you, a question I ask all my guests. Yep. And the question goes as follows. If Pablo would be a brand, what would it stand for? If Pablo would be a brand, what would it stand for? Um, Texas. Texas. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say that's so an American answer. <laughs> Texas. All yeah. right. No, but uh, I will. I will take the the smoking uh, smoking meat uh, part also of the brand. Then. Uh. <laughs> awesome. No, Pablo. Thank you so much. Uh, wish you nothing but the best, and uh, we'll see each other on May the 11th. Likewise. Thank you so much. That's it. We have once again reached the end of an episode. I just really appreciate you all spending the time. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Until next week with a fresh new episode.